Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Dominic Marcelino, Director of Strategy and Business Development for Kajit a provider of internet connectivity services for students, enterprises, and state and local governments working with all the major wireless carriers in the U.S. Kajit recently partnered with the city of Williamsburg, Virginia on a six-month pilot program to deliver free internet access to local residents. Dominic and I discussed the details of that partnership and other ways that Kajit is teaming up with cities, schools, and libraries to better connect communities, as well as the challenges to forming some of those municipal partnerships and more. Dominic, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nicole. Pleasure to be here. So just to start off, can you give me a little bit of background on Kajit? Tell me um, what type of entities you work with, maybe uh, the service providers and the technology you support, and some of the um, locations where you guys are active. Yeah, absolutely. Kajit is an 18-year-old company. It was founded by three dads (laughs) who were sitting around thinking about how to make the internet and uh, sell technology safe for their kids. They had six kids respectively, and they took the first initials of each of their kids and created the name Kajit. And they started by providing uh, flip phones for kids um, with a limited amount of functionality so the kids couldn't get themselves in in trouble, um, but also have access to, uh, to those functions. And then from there, the company grew in a number of different directions. Um, in that work, we eventually became an MVNO uh, for one of the carriers and did such a good job. They asked us to actually establish MVNOs for other companies. Uh, we built uh, the Comcast Xfinity um, MVNO system as, as well as uh, charters uh, among other companies. Um, but over time, we actually got more and more focused on providing end-to-end solutions. Um, in particular, uh, we grew an education business uh, where last year, all the work that was put in over a decade really came to fruition for us. And I think it's good that we were there for uh, the, the community in the United States as almost every child started to go to school at home. Uh, what we had been providing were uh, cell-connected laptops, hotspots, um, Wi-Fi on buses, uh, the means by which kids who didn't necessarily have access to the internet at home could continue to do their homework uh, and be successful in school pre-pandemic. It then became kind of imperative for everyone uh, during the pandemic, my own kids included. Um, and uh, we continue to provide those services to over 3,000 school districts. But the work to establish that actually led us into what we call the enterprise division, which I work for, um, where we work with pretty much everyone else. And we were leveraging um, the, the, the work that we do with the carriers. We work with all four major American carriers, two in Canada, an additional partner internationally, and we're adding to that all of the time. Um, we have a private network integration with each of the carriers. We have our own APN. Uh, we, we, all the traffic flows through actually a network that we've built, our own physical infrastructure. We apply firewalls and filters and have a bunch of patents that allow us to you know, make that experience a safe place for kids, but it was also very relevant in a number of other industries. And last year for us, you know, that included transportation, healthcare, and field service workers, where we're doing similar things to facilitate those businesses um, as we have done uh, with education. In terms of technology that we support, uh, the great news for us is that any approved cellular device, uh, as well as moving into hybrid networks and other other topologies in the future, 
can work with Kajit. So we're a device agnostic uh, group. We actually have capabilities that have helped a number of customers as they're building their own physical products, actually launch them with carriers. We we're actually in the middle of helping a couple troubleshoot those last steps before you launch a, a carrier product. Um, but that allows us to uh, provide our services to pretty much anyone or to find the hardware that works for a use case. Um, when it came to education, we went out and solved the, the, the watch device problem for our customers, but could always go procure something else for them. It's a little different uh, on, on, our, on our side of the house because uh, customers tend to have an idea of which device that they want. That's not a problem. We have distribution relationships and uh, hardware partnerships that allow us to go get any approved device, procure them in the quantities that our customers need. And we have our own internal uh, operations and kidding group um, that handles all these products. And so we do that for education at a scale much larger than where we are at enterprise right now. And that has allowed us to actually grow our business by being able to leverage those those capabilities. Got it. Okay. Just a, a quick follow-up um on that, one of the issues we ran into here in New York City when kids were given, you know, devices for to go on remote to remote school this past year is a lot of them were not connected uh, and they they couldn't access the internet. Is are your devices always connected when you're distributing them, or does that depend on the partnerships? It's a great question, and and. Yeah, so connectivity to the internet has a bunch of different pieces to it. I was talking uh, to a group of people about this on Friday. Um, first of all, you have to have a device that can connect to the internet, but then you also have to have um, not just is it theoretical access to the internet so that say somebody's run cable to your building, you have to have an account or you have to have a device that can connect to a cellular network. So all of our devices come uh, with an activated SIM card for one of the major carriers and with the school districts, we, we procure devices that have multi-carrier connectivity in, in most cases, in which case, either with a single SIM solution in the future or now, we would just replace a SIM that's there with a different SIM to be sure that we got the best carrier that worked for them. There are cases, that's just how RF works, where there are places that would be very difficult to, um, to use a wireless connection, in which case, uh, we need to find a wireline or other, or other option for, um, for replacing that connectivity. But... But yeah, our devices come connected, ready to go, activated. Uh, it, it actually ends up being a, um, uh, the thing that I think that we like to well, we point to the most delights customers that they turn it on and it works. That's something that we do uh, as, as a default way of, of sending our kid out the door is that it's ready to work so that kids and, and their parents don't have to worry about figuring out how to take that step, which can be a big inconvenience. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know that one of the recent partnerships you guys established was with the city of, of Williamsburg. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that partnership, what communities will be served and, and how all that will work? Absolutely. So Williamsburg, Virginia is, is known for uh, its its colonial <laughs> uh, community, <laughs> but there's a larger city of about 80,000 people that, that live there. And we were approached uh, by them through our partnership uh, with Verizon towards the end of last year. They had CARES Act money that they were looking to spend to augment a program that they'd actually already established, which was the city, the city citizens voted to increase their own taxes to provide uh, internet services and connectivity options for the citizenry as a public service. Um, it wasn't going to replace uh, the wired connections and wireless connections that, that all of the population had, but it was a commitment by the community to invest their own money in making sure that everybody had access to the internet. 
as part of this, they established this program where they were going to um, put routers uh, that could that could generate a Wi-Fi signal inside of a, an apartment or a house to a, a group of households um, as a pilot project. And so they picked a community called Highland Park. And with us, they procured 200 routers uh, that connect uh, to a wireless network and began distributing them to the community after doing a campaign, awareness generation campaign. Uh, this is our, it started, it started in, in winter time. Uh, they began distributing them. They learned a lot about what, uh, what it takes to convince the community that the, that the government is there to help. Um, they, they learned some interesting um, uh, information about, about how best to communicate that, who, who the local um, partners should be in order to do that. Uh, and after the initial pilot project in Highland Park, it's now available to, to anyone and they will, um, they will you know, eventually distribute all of those and look to, to replicate that uh, beyond this initial project. Very cool. So when you're establishing partnerships, whether it's with the cities uh, themselves or with schools or, or libraries, um, what are some of the challenges you guys run into um, and, and how, how do you seek to overcome them? Is it policy stuff? Is it, you know, different uh, d depending on the local community? Just make it live for me a little bit, the challenges you guys have. I'll, I'll go back to Williamsburg and then talk a little bit about our, our work with the schools. So Perfect. one of the challenges was letting everybody know that the program existed in this in this little community. And so what they did was actually send out a mailer, to, I think two or three to every single person, uh, at least every mailbox, in an attempt to let them know that, uh, that it existed and they could come on this particular day and receive, um, receive a router and have access to the internet for free. Um, and, and so while some people showed up that first day, many of those people who showed up also expressed a reluctance uh, to, to sign up because they didn't quite believe that it, it, that it worked uh, in the sense that they figured that there would be there, some other shoe was going to drop or that there was going to be something that, uh, that, that was going to you know, make them uncomfortable, that they would be tracked in some way. Um, and I think the biggest thing is making sure that, um, that in communicating with a group of people that are going to be engaged in a new program, uh, what is it? Uh, make sure that you actually have you know non partners outside of those providing the services that are advocates on behalf of this. So they actually started to to work with community organizers in order to build to build some trust. And then I think the biggest thing is actually the users become the word of mouth folks in, in a situation like this that would convince others that it's something that uh, that they can use. You know, in terms of schools, it's a little bit different um, because you have uh, you know before it was. Uh, it was. It's actually a similar similar challenge. Letting people know that this, that this exists, convincing them, convincing families that uh, it's worth their while to have their child go through whatever procedural steps there are to to be able to check out a laptop, and assume that responsibility for a day or a week in order to have that device and then and then return it. That was the sort of way that we. Had, uh, did this pre-pandemic, there would be either hotspots or laptops or both that could be checked out on a nightly or weekly basis. And I think establishing, you know, the rules that that made it seem feasible and safe for the, the parents to do that, where they didn't have large liability if something were to go wrong. I mean, we are talking about children and mistakes happen or even accidents all the time. Once everybody had a device, I think a lot of that went away when it didn't feel like something, you know, sort of like school lunches. I think the most successful school lunch programs give everybody lunch, so you don't know who the people are. You don't distinguish the people that can pay for their own lunch or not. Once everybody had a laptop, the acceptance and usage rate 
was extremely high in the communities that we were serving. I, I got to see that firsthand with my own kids using Khajiit products, actually, because they were in a school system that we that we serve. Um, and and then it's actually a matter of getting the kids to want to participate, which is actually the same problem that teachers have in the classroom. And and I think that the one thing that I took away from that was it got to a point of sophistication where the problems that teachers and students were facing were exactly the same ones that they faced day to day. It just happened to be that you weren't in the same room and they had to deal with them differently, but it wasn't one of connectivity. I was so impressed with the way that our our school partners, um, as well as the school that I dealt with, uh, overcame those challenges. And, you know, one last point would be that uh, the biggest challenge is what do I do when something goes wrong? And the you know the library or the school or the school district has to make it very easy for somebody to get a replacement. Uh, with that in with that in place, you you then know that you can count on this connectivity for your child to be able to to do their schooling, and and you don't necessarily have to have any kind of significant you know, punishment if something goes wrong uh, by having extra and understanding that these things happen uh, and making it feel like something that everybody's doing. Those are critical. Hmm. I think that's such a good point about having to engage uh, local community organizers and, and trusted people in, in the communities uh, for, for this. So um, I wanted to also ask you about telehealth and whether or not you've seen a growth in those partnerships since the start of the pandemic. And, you know, it's kind of a similar question. What infrastructure needs to be in place in order for those partnerships to be successful? That's a great question. Telehealth is actually something we've seen significant growth in uh, through our partnerships. So the customers that we serve are actually mm-hmm. the ones that are uh, to date providing telehealth services for insurance companies, um, hospital chains, medical clinics. And uh, the challenges there are a little bit different. Um, the first is with telehealth, there are 20, maybe 30 different platforms that could be used in order to generate a telehealth session. If you're doing something like what we're doing right now, there are some requirements around security um, that the application itself needs to be secure. Working with us a lot with as a HIPAA friendly uh, network, as well as the carriers that have their own um, security measures, that is something that passed muster in order to have um, you know, video telehealth sessions. Um, so that had to be determined. Uh, you know, what we do with our partners is make sure that the application or any other peripherals that are needed in order for a device to, to have those sessions is in place, again, with an active cell connection, as you mentioned earlier. Um, then you run into two problems. The first is uh, it has to be very easy to use. And so that's why we use cell phones and tablets that look just like what most people have and that the instructions for use are very straightforward. So the devices often are locked down in a way that somebody can't go clutter the screen and actually not be able to find the thing that they need to. But it's a very simple set of steps. Turn it on, press this button, wait for this text, click this link, have your session, turn it off. Um, so instructions are key, more pictures than words, uh, and then familiar platforms. But then the biggest challenge is those phones or those laptops or those tablets that are used in short-term telehealth um, uh, situations, somebody who has it for a week or a month, they're not going to keep it. Well, then, so actually reverse logistics and cleaning, both of the, the digital information, so all the user profile and other, other authentication information needs to be wiped, but then physically they need to be cleaned. And there's a whole set of ISO criteria around cleaning that that is important. So as we generate more and more devices that are going out into this space, the reverse logistics becomes very critical because you need to be able to receive it back in a timely fashion, clean it, kit it, send it back out. 
Otherwise, you're going to have more expensive programs by needing to carry a whole lot of additional devices. And, and that was something that you know we were working through with our partners, hadn't really thought of before these were being launched. Um, and it's great now to be at a place where we know that that's a critical piece. And so we can bring it up before we anybody buys anything before you get started is this is how we do it all the way, not cradle to grave, but cradle to cradle. So it's a so it's a cycle. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, so last question for you then. Um, this past year, we've seen funding come in uh, for broadband so far through the CARES Act, through uh, the FCC's emergency broadband benefit. Um, there's also the emergency connectivity fund for schools and libraries. Um, there's more money potentially to come out of a infrastructure package that will probably not pass until later, uh, probably a couple of months, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, how um, what partnerships has this enabled for you guys, and how are you guys preparing for high demand, um, like I said, coming after the bill passed, uh, and potentially um, supply shortages as well? Yeah, I'll take that last point first, which is the way to do that is to have we have direct relationships with suppliers, and we hold stock. We last year at the very beginning of the pandemic made a big investment in hardware before people realized how much we would need stocked up on laptops and hotspots to be able to serve our customers, assuming there would be very high demand. We we didn't even have enough, and we, we and we're like everyone else scrambling for more. We know that on, in one way we won't have the same situation where suddenly tens of millions of people need need that. But what we do is both stock in advance of, of projections, as well as have direct relationships uh, with some manufacturers uh, on, on the hotspot side in order for us to build uh, build to order, which doesn't necessarily preclude there being issues. The, the, um, uh, the microchip shortage that everyone faces uh, from Ford down to Khajiit is not something you can just make go away. Um, but but that will that will change over time, and that that's how we address the the hardware side. Um, in terms of which of these benefits we we work on, um, we're in a really great position because we uh, we end up being a implementation partner for for those entities that qualify for these funds. And for example, in the in the um, the ECF funds. We did the legal work to determine that purchasing um, products from Kajit qualify for re or fully reimbursable under ECF. And we've done the same thing for the FCC's telehealth funding mechanism. We work with one of our partners to help a number of uh, institutions apply for funding under that. And having already been successful in the previous funding round, we know that what we offer uh, will be supported. And I think that's the biggest thing uh, that we do is provide consultation services ourselves, as well as with our partners to work with in, you know, groups and institutions that could apply for these funds to help them actually answer that question in advance and even help them in some cases with their applications for them to know that what they're putting in uh, in terms of a budget or a proposal can be funded with the things that they actually need, steering them away from stuff that might not be approved but also really focusing them in on, on what their objectives are and how we can best work with them to, to achieve them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dominic. I really enjoyed talking with you and I hope you'll keep me posted on uh, any other Khajiit news coming up. Absolutely, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again, Dominic Marcelino, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. 
Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.